All right, our Torah portion for this week, it's a weird Hebrew name, it's called Behelotecha, and it means when you set up, and it's taken from Numbers chapter 8, going all the way to chapter 12. We're going to be in chapter 12 predominantly, but as I have done in this past year with the Torah portions, I've used the Renewed Covenant, the New Testament, as a springboard for the subject matter that we're going to address in the Torah portion itself in Numbers. So... Um, we're going to begin with 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. And so as you're turning there, I'm just going to say a blessing over the reading of the word. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant, that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All right, so... If you'll join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I guess if I had to title this message, and these messages are hard for me to preach because sometimes messages, when a preacher preaches them, it sounds a bit self-serving. I remember it was so hard for me to preach on tithing, but it was addressed in the Word of God, so I had to preach it, but it sounded like I was serving myself because who benefits from the tithe? It's the minister, <laughs> you know? But... Um, everybody knows that I, you know, that that's not why I preached it. It's just that's what the Word of God says. So this is another kind of self-serving sounding message to some. But if I titled this message, it would be "Bad Mouthing the Minister." Bad mouthing the minister. So yeah, now you can see why it, it's a little bit uncomfortable because it sounds self-serving. But whatever's addressed in the Word of God, and a lot of preachers won't preach what they're guilty of. Not me. Because it doesn't matter if I'm guilty of, of, of this or not. I've got to preach it because it's in the Word of God, and I'm God's minister, so I can't hold back. Even if I'm preaching against myself or preaching against something I've done, I've got to preach it anyway. It doesn't mean I'm a hypocrite. It just means that I'm teaching what the Word of God says. And I can't help who it offends. I can't help who gets angry or mad at me because it, I'm not preaching my own philosophies. I'm preaching the Word of God. So if you have a problem with what I say, take it up with him. He's the one who said it. I'm just kind of explaining it to y'all. <laughs> so um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul, is addressing his spiritual son Timothy as he is kind of like the congregational leader of where he's at. He's kind of like the pastor, if you will. So he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, um, Do not accept an accusation against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, where did he get that? From Robert's rules of... Well, he, he got it from Jesus, but where did Jesus get it from? Okay, well, where the, yeah, but where else do we find it? Two or three witnesses we find in the law of Moses. We find in the Torah. We find that the Holy Spirit gave these words to Moses to give to Israel that in you know by two or three witnesses let everything be established. So it's not a he said she said thing. You can't like you know lynch somebody on just uh, on hearsay. So Paul is just quoting to Timothy what he already knows from the Torah. He says, "Do not accept an accusation against an elder 
except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, why would somebody want to accuse an elder? Maybe they're mad because the elder got on to him for saying something, for, for, for uh, uh, confronting them regarding an issue, a sin. Maybe they're jealous of the elder because he has clout, he has power, he has authority. Maybe they're jealous of that. So there's a lot of reasons that maybe somebody might come out of an accusation about an elder. Maybe they seen something but really didn't have the full story and they're taking what they saw out of context and spreading rumors. So... It says, do not accept the accusation against an elder except on the evidence, not just the words, the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then it says in verse 20, correct those who continue sinning in the presence of everyone. That could be a hint of why somebody was talking against an elder. Maybe because this elder was correcting them regarding a sin that they were doing in front of everybody. And they may have gone about it the right way and kind of confronted them in private, but nonetheless, they, they got their itty-bitty feelings hurt. And so Paul goes to say, correct those who continue sinning in the presence of everyone so that the rest may also fear. Because if somebody does something, they'll be able to, to get away with it and say, well, if this person could do this, then I could do this. Why is Canada and the United States in the situation it's in today? Because we failed to follow through with the death penalty. We failed to follow through with proper punishment of crimes. People get a slap on the wrist. They get arrested and released the same day. You know, they just maybe spend a little bit of jail time, learn how to be a better criminal. But if somebody gets, you know, caught for murder and they get sent to the electric chair or the guillotine or the somebody else that's a murder, it's like, oh, wait, if this guy gets killed for what he did, maybe I shouldn't do what I'm planning on doing. So if you know you can't get away with something, that causes a righteous, godly fear in the people. And so capital punishment is not just some kind of willy-nilly, let's get revenge. Capital punishment is a deterrent. It's to make a statement saying, look, we don't accept this. We don't get away with this. And, you know, so don't do this. So this is why Paul says, correct those who continue sinning in the presence of everyone so that the rest may also fear, meaning have a, a respectful, reverential fear. And so Yeshua, Jesus, he tells us exactly how we need to correct those who sin in front of everybody. In Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 15 through 19, this is the protocol, this is the procedure if you have to address somebody who is sinning publicly. So in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, it says this, Now, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault while you are with him alone. Pull him to the side privately so you don't publicly shame the individual and uh, you know, uh, point out the fault. Then it says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay, I realize I screwed up. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said this. Please forgive me. I want to make this right. Verse 16, but if he doesn't listen, take with you one or two more so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may stand. So it's not a he said, she said thing. You have a witness. And the best thing to do is not get somebody who's your close friend to say, hey, can you come with me and, you know, listen to this guy. You get somebody who that's a good acquaintance. But they don't have a dog in the fight so that they could be unbiased and impartial and so they can listen without partiality. Because if you bring a good friend, they're going to want to side with you. You may be wrong, but they still may want to side with you because you're buddies. So get somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight, as I always say. 
But if he doesn't listen, take with you one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may stand. And it's also recommended that you bring somebody who has a good reputation, like somebody that might be a leader or, or you know, uh, is an elder or respected. Then it says, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. So uh, other translations talk about bringing it before the church. It doesn't mean that you stand up in front of the whole congregation and say, hey, this person did this. What it means in context is you take it before the elders of that church, the leadership of that church, which was called a bait dean, a house of judgment. So any conflict that happened within a church or a synagogue, the elders dealt with it, and whatever they ruled stood. It was as good, as binding, and as legal as anything in the secular world. So it says, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. And if he refuses to listen to even Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector. So a tax collector, you can substitute that word for traitor. Because tax collectors were considered traitors because it was a Jewish person that was working for the Roman government, which wasn't necessarily wrong, but they were taking taxes for Rome. But on the side, they were they were stealing from their brothers and sisters, making a little bit more, taking more than they should. We read that story with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus says, look, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give back four times as much, which is what the Torah says. So... Um, so it says, and if he refuses to listen to even a Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan, which means you don't treat him nasty, bad. You don't give him dirty looks. You, you're civil, but you don't hang out with him. You don't go grab a coffee with him. You don't sit down to dinner with him. You don't go to you know a hockey game with him. Uh, you treat him as a pagan because a Jew and a pagan didn't really have anything in common. They may greet each other in the marketplace, say hi. They may be good neighbors to each other, but it's not like they're buddy-buddy. So it said, treat him as a pagan or as a tax collector. So that's the protocol. Now, most times rumors are spread against leaders because of one, uh, a jealous or entitled elder. Now, you have somebody, uh, okay, let's say a pastor of a church. The pastor of the church has a board of directors that's usually over him. So they're answerable to the board. And sometimes the board thinks that they have more power than they really do. The board is actually there to assist the pastor in the vision that God has given him for that congregation. But they think that they are the leash of the pastor. So a lot of times you'll get a jealous or entitled elder who says something falsely against a leader or a pastor. So that's a lot of times how rumors get spread. Now, an example, um, let's see. I'm going to turn here, check out this passage before I read it to you. Sometimes when I write stuff down, when I'm writing it down, I know why I want to, what I want to say about it, but then I get there and I'm like, wait a second, why did I have that? So in, um, all right, so now a jealous or entitled elder. Now, a lot of times the pastor or the church leader is, is um, younger than the eldership. So usually the elders or the board, they've been there for decades. And you have the pastor who's maybe only been there a couple years, maybe a decade at best. They're, the pastor's younger, so they think, okay, well, I've, I've got authority over this guy. But here, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 12, says, Let no one look down on you, or let no one look down on your youthfulness, but become an example of the faith in speech, in conduct, in love, in faithfulness, and in purity. 
So the Apostle Paul realized that some of the leaders of the congregation were older than him. He probably felt intimidated. Who am I, this young guy, teaching these older people and telling them what to do? And Paul says, look, don't, don't, you know, don't let them look down on you because you're young. Let no man despise thy youth, King James says. But it says, do not uh, let no one look down on you because of your youthfulness. But become an example of faithfulness in speech, in conduct, in love, in faithfulness, and in purity. Now, the biblical example that we're going to read about in Numbers chapter 12 when we get there is that Miriam, Moses' sister, become a little bit jealous of Moses' leadership and Moses' relationship with God. She started finding things to criticize Moses about. She thought she had the right because not only was Moses a prophet, but she was a prophet. Not only, you know, and not only that, Moses or uh, Miriam was like Moses' second mother. Who was it that watched over Moses when he was in the little wicker basket in the Nile? It was Miriam, his older sister. She's the one who took care of him. So she felt like, I'm older. I'm the elder. I'm like the second mother. Our mother's passed away. I've kind of taken the matriarch's place. So I have a right to tell my baby brother what to do. So she was overlooking God's anointing on Moses's life and the authority that God has given Moses, and she felt entitled that she could criticize Moses's leadership. So that's the number. That's the first example. Most times, rumors are spread against leaders because of a jealous or entitled elder. Number two, one who a leader has corrected has become disgruntled. So how many times? I'm going to use Aaron as an example because Aaron shoots straight from the hip. People come to Aaron. I've got this problem. Help me with this problem. What do I do? Aaron tells them what to do. They don't do it. And when things don't work out, they get mad at Aaron. And guess what? A rumor spread in the community. Oh, he's dealing drugs at Harvest House. Oh, he said this about me. Or, oh, he did this. Or, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Or blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's just an, a disgruntled person that didn't get their way. And uh, so... Um, those are the two biggest reasons why uh, there's rumors spread and people start bad-mouthing the minister. So let's go to our Torah portion in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Very short chapter. So here in uh, the very first verse, it says, Then Miriam and Aaron, so not only was Miriam in on this, but Aaron, which was Moses' older brother, so apparently, I think Aaron, uh, yeah, Aaron, Aaron was older than Moses. So it says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses on account of the Cushite woman he married because he had married a Cushite woman. All right, so this Cushite woman kind of throws some confusion and people want to say, oh, see, the Bible doesn't even know what it's talking about. The Bible's full of contradictions. He didn't marry a Cushite woman. He married a Midianite woman. Zipporah was a Midianite woman. So we read in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 2, uh, verse starting with verse 15, it says, um, when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. He, where he sat down by a well, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came and drew water. They filled their troughs in the water uh, to, to, they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away, so Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, "How have you come to return so soon today? 
So they told him, an Egyptian, because Moses looked like an Egyptian at that, mo at, at that time, delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. He also drew water uh, for us and watered the flocks. Well, where is he? He said to his daughters. Why did you leave the man behind? Invite him, uh, invite him to have some food and to eat. Moses was content to stay with the man. Later, he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Okay, so Zipporah wasn't Cushite. Zipporah was a Midianite. So who's this Cushite woman? That that uh, yeah, what, what, who's this Cushite woman that Aaron and, and Miriam are are talking about? Okay, they still could have been talking about about Zipporah because they could have used Cushite woman as a slang term. So Cushites were very dark people. They they were pretty much black. Now in um, the Song of Solomon, chapter one. The, yes. the, the woman of Solomon, she says, don't look down on me because my skin is dark. Don't look down on me because my skin is dark because my older brothers made me stay out in the sun and work in the sun all the time. Is basically the paraphrase of Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Now, what did Zipporah do? What was her occupation? She was a shepherdess. She was outside all day long, so she probably had very dark skin. So they could have been saying this against Zipporah as a slight, kind of as a, as a derogatory remark. That's one, that's one uh, interpretation. Uh, secondly, in the book of Jasher, which is an extra-biblical text, so Jasher, chapter 72 to 73, talks about when Moses fled Pharaoh, that he didn't immediately go to Midian. He ended up going to Cush. And he lived in Cush and entrenched himself with the Cushite people. He ended up staying so long that he became a general in the Cushite army. And as a result, he had married a Cushite woman. So he was already married. So that, that's another interpretation. That's another possibility. The third possibility is that Rashbam and Josephus in Antiquities 2 uh, verses 252 to 253 talks about how Moses married a Cushite woman when he was a prince in Egypt before he became a fugitive. So he was given a wife, and usually the princes of Egypt are married off to foreign dignitaries to keep peace. It was a diplomatic marriage. So those are the three options. Either it was uh, Zipporah they were talking about, and they were just kind of commenting because she was so dark. It could have been that he already had a wife when he went to Cush, or he could have already been married before he even left Egypt because uh, he was given a wife as a prince of Egypt. So those are all possible reasons for them saying this. So Miriam, as an elder sister and a mother-like figure, felt entitled to judge and criticize her baby brother, totally dismissing his God-ordained authority in his role. So verse 2 says, they asked, has Adonai spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And Adonai heard it. So this implies they were talking about Moses behind his back. They didn't even have the courtesy to criticize him to his face. Not only that, they were saying, well, look, I mean, Moses is a prophet, but we're prophets too. You know, we're on the same level. Not only that, heck, we're older. We've got seniority. And it says that Adonai heard it. Now, of course, let's say that they did criticize Moses to his face. I don't think Moses was humble. He wouldn't say anything. He would just kept it to himself, even if it hurt his feelings, because he's the baby brother, because he loves his brother and sister. He probably wouldn't, say, he wouldn't have said anything. Well, in verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very humble. 
more so than any on the face of the earth. Now, to say that, you've either got to be totally conceited or totally humble. Because who wrote the book of Numbers? Moses. Moses. He's saying this about himself. So it does sound a little conceited, but you know, you can be truth, you could be truthful about something. Like, okay, for instance, I've ran into people who are excellent guitar players. I mean, they know how to play the guitar. So, oh, will you play a song first? Or, oh, well, I'm not very good. I just pick a little. Quit being an idiot. You know you're a good guitar player, so quit playing the humble card. We're not asking you to be a jerk about it or to, to, to say I'm the greatest, but you know you can play. So Moses knew he was humble, and he wasn't saying this to be conceited. There was this one guy who said, you know what? One time I was awarded at church. I was given a humble button for being humble but they took it away from me because I wore it. (laughs) So anyway, so it says that now the man Moses was very humble, more so than any on the face of the earth. Uh, Okay, now verses 4 and 5. Immediately Adonai said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the three of you come out to the tent of meeting. Now, There's Kim, Karen, and Chris, my two older sisters and myself. Now, whenever we heard throughout the household, Kimberly Dawn, Karen Ruth, Christopher Scott Shoemaker, get down here right now. We knew we were in trouble. We knew we were dead. One of us did something wrong. One or all of us did something wrong. We didn't want to hear our names like that come out of our mother's mouth. So imagine how these three felt when they heard God himself say (laughs) to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the three of you come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out and Adonai descended in a column of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting and called, so now we know who's gonna get in trouble, called to Aaron and Miriam, and the two stepped forward. Moses was like, Now I wouldn't have done that. Now if my mom called Kim, Karen, and Chris down and she called Kim and Karen out, I'd be like, you're gonna get in trouble. No, Moses was probably like, right? So God, basically, God wanted to defend Moses because he knew Moses wasn't going to defend himself. Moses was too humble to defend himself. He wasn't going to speak against his elder brother and sister because he respected them. They were like a second mother and father to him. So in verse 6, it says, here's God. He's saying, hear now my words, he said. When there is a prophet of Adonai, I reveal myself in a vision, and I speak to him in a dream. We all think that's great. Oh, I heard the Lord speak to me, or the Lord gave me a dream last night. Whoop-de-doo, verse 7 says, Not so with my servant Moses. In all my house he is faithful. I speak with him face to face, plainly, and not in riddles. Yeah, not real, because when, when God speaks to you prophetically, he gives you visions, visions you have to interpret. He gives you dreams, dreams you have to interpret. He said, not so with Moses. I tell it like it is. I shoot straight from the hip. I tell him exactly what I mean. I speak with him face to face, plainly, and not in riddles. He even looks at the form of Adonai. So guess who Moses saw? Yeshua. Because whenever God takes a physical manifest form, it's called the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is Yeshua in pre-incarnate form. And, and so Moses shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration, 
And he's talking with Jesus like they've known each other forever. Well, they have. Because Jesus himself says, I'm not a God of the, of the dead, but a God of the living. I, uh, so it says, um, he even looks at the form of Adonai. Now he's addressing Miriam and uh, Aaron. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So God tells Mir Miriam and Aaron that Moses is a step above a prophet. He is an intimate friend. So, you know, here the whole time they were saying, okay, we're prophets just like Moses, but we're better than Moses because we're elders. We got seniority. Age doesn't matter with God. You know, because how many, you know, nine times out of ten, who did God choose to be the patriarch and leader of the family? It wasn't the firstborn. It was usually secondborn. It wasn't, it wasn't Cain. It was Abel. It wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. It wasn't Ishmael. It was Isaac. Right? So it's usually the secondborn that God chose because somehow the firstborn was who was supposed to be chosen. There was something that God couldn't choose them. There was a reason he didn't choose them. So Moses was a foreshadow of Messiah in his relationship with Israel. So Miriam and Aaron failed to realize that, God or, uh, uh, that God's ordained authority supersedes their chronological seniority and supersedes uh, in, uh, in their spiritual offices and gifts. All right, so uh, let's, let's go to verse 9, see what happens. Adonai's anger burned against them, and he left them. So the cloud lifted. When the cloud was lifted from above the tent, behold, Miriam had Zaaretz. She had leprosy. And the reason it's translated in the Hebrew word Zaaretz is because it wasn't leprosy as we understand leprosy today, like leprosy colonies in Africa and India. Leprosy could be any skin affliction. You know, it could be anything from a zit to a boil to actual leprosy. So here it says, when the cloud lifted from the tent, Miriam had Zaaretz like snow. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. It may, may seem small, but from a child, if we've gone to Sunday school as a kid, I remember the little flannel graphs, you know, and they put the little flannel graphs. Well, all the Bible characters were white, right? But, you know, we're older. We know that that wasn't so. So we know that Noah had three sons, and according to the extra-biblical books, Noah was born an albino, which means he had no melanin. So when he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they were born different colors. You had Ham, born like everybody else at that time, black. You had Shem, which was born brown. So he was the father of all the Jews and the Arabs, all the Hebrews and the Arabs. Then you have Japheth, which was born Caucasian, he, the white. He was, he was the father of all the, the you know, um, uh, uh, like the Caucasian people, the Asian people, things like that. So it says leprosy white as snow. If I get leprosy, my skin's pretty fair. You wouldn't probably be able to tell because I'm pretty white. But Miriam must have been very brown. Very dark colored, darker than a Cushite or a lighter than a Cushite woman. Cushite woman was black, black, like soil, potting soil black. Whereas, you know, a Jew was probably very brown, like maybe a mahogany red. So this leprosy showed up like a highlighter on a piece of paper. So Miriam had Zaaretz like snow. As Aaron turned toward her, behold, she had Zaaretz. He said to Moses, please, my Lord. Don't hold against us the sin that we have committed so foolishly. Don't let her be like a stillborn baby who comes from the mother's womb with the flesh half eaten away. So leprosy was a form of death. It was a, it was a death of the skin. 
Because when it, even if a person that's white dies, they turn even whiter, right? Because there's no lividity, there's no blood. So he's basically, he knew that this was a death sentence for, for Miriam. So Moses cried to Adonai saying, oh God, heal her now. Adonai said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she, need, would she not be in shame for seven days? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days after she may be brought back. So basically, what, what, what did God do, basically? He grounded Miriam and sent her to her room. <laughs> That's the equivalent of what God did. Make her go outside the camp. She's grounded for a week. Make her go outside the camp because anybody who had leprosy couldn't stay in the camp. So that she had to live outside the camp. So it's like, you go to your room and you think about what you've done. <laughs> Aaron got off, you know, just with kind of a warning, a slap on her wrist, because he, he just didn't, I don't think he was the one who perpetuated this criticism. He just agreed with the criticism. So he wasn't punished as bad. So let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back. So Miriam was restricted to outside the camp for seven days. The people did not move on until Miriam was brought back. And Miriam was a very important member of the community. Not only she was in the leadership and she was a prophetess, but according to rabbinic tradition, she was the water scout. So she knew how to find water because after she died, guess what? Israel couldn't find water. And that's where they had to miraculously get water from a rock. So Miriam was brought back. Afterwards, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the wilderness of Paran. Now, um, I want to read to you from this booklet. It's by Dean and Susan Wheelock of Hebrew Roots Ministries. And they have a little, a little booklet called Lashon Hara, which means the evil tongue. So this is basically talking about what happened with Miriam. Miriam was, her sin was Lashon Hara. Her sin was the evil tongue. Now, this defines what Lashon Hara, the evil tongue, is. Now, according to rabbinic tradition, most people who got leprosy got leprosy because they misused their power of speech in some way. And as a result of punishment, it was leprosy. So it says, there are two major types of Lashon Hara, which needs to be avoided. Number one, making a remark that in any way puts down or belittles another person. Making a remark that in any way puts down or belittles another person. Now, sometimes we do this jokingly. And a lot of times if we do it jokingly, hopefully we know the person enough that they're okay with it. You know, that they're not going to get offended by it kind of thing, that, that, you know, it's good humor. But if you don't know, then don't say anything because you don't want to accidentally hurt somebody's feelings. Number two, making a remark which causes another person to be hurt physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or financially. How many people have been falsely accused and they lost their job, their, their income, their family, their friends because somebody spread a rumor? because somebody committed Lashon Hara. Making a, remark, making a remark which causes another person to be hurt physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or financially. Following are some important points to be understood about Lashon Hara. Number one, a statement is considered to be Lashon Hara if it hurts the feelings of another person, even with nothing actually derogatory being said. So if you didn't mean it, but it happened, that's Lashon Hara. You need to repent and make it right with that person, even if it wasn't intentional. Number two, Lashon Hara is not confined to the spoken word, but written. 
graffiti, passing notes, texting, putting up a Facebook status that's against somebody else. So Lashon Hara is not confined to the spoken word. Written, hinting, or even facial expressions can be used to communicate Lashon Hara. Rolling the eyes in would be... Huh? Would rolling the eyes? Yes. To somebody or like... That would be kind of a show. Yeah. Like for instance, like let's say if let's say if somebody comes in okay. Let's say that we're a, a middle class, pretty well to do congregation and we're all wearing nice clothes. And let's say that somebody comes in and they're just wearing, you know, ripped jeans and like a, a sweatshirt that's all grease stained and, and let's say they got dirt everywhere and, and you know, we're like and I, I kind of curl my lip a little bit and say, oh, welcome, come on in. Well, that's Lashon Hurrah. Even though I welcomed them verbally, my facial expression revealed what was in my heart. Ooh, you're gross. You're probably stinky and smelly. You're probably some gross homeless person that's got, I don't know, hepatitis or what, you know. That's Lashon Hurrah. Yeah, you got cooties. <laughs> so facial expression. Uh, all right, number three, a story about another person can be Lashon Hara, even if one doesn't mention any names. For someone may be able to figure out to whom it's refer who to whom one is referring. Well, I'm not gonna say anything, but you know, there's this guy who went to Afghanistan and well, who am I talking about? I didn't name the name, but everybody knows that David went to Afghanistan. I'm not naming any names, but I'm pointing them out in my little Lashon Hurrah story. So that's wrong. So if you tell a story, but everybody knows who it's about anyway, it's Lashon Hurrah. You're still gossiping. You're still slandering. All right. Uh, number four, one may not belittle another person. This is true even if no damage would be caused due to the fact that the listener would not believe the report. So let's say that somebody comes in and says, you know what? I saw, I saw Rabbi Chris's wife um, down, at the, you know, down at the bar, and she was sitting there with another man, and she was drunk. Nobody here would believe that. They'd be like, no. Nobody here would believe that, but even if nobody believed it, it would still be Lashon Hurrah even if nobody believed it because it's a flat-out lie. It's an inflammatory, accusatory, false statement against somebody. Okay, it it's, gets a little bit deeper here. Number five, repeating a story that belittles another is Lashon Hurrah, even if the story is public knowledge. Because you imagine making a mistake, a boneheaded mistake, and of course you get razzed about it when it happens, but every time somebody gets together for a bonfire or a little party, that story comes up because it's local legend of how stupid you were. And you had to live with that the rest of your life, and you may pass it off like, oh, I'm used to it, it's no big deal. But inside, you're embarrassed because that story keeps getting repeated every time you turn around because nobody could let it die. That's Lashon Hurrah. Even if the words spoken are not technically Lashon Hurrah, if the result of those words has a negative effect on another person, it could be classified as such. Uh, if it's... E it is even wrong to say something derogatory about another person in a joking manner. Now, I'm assuming that, you know, I can have a good ribbing with, with my friends, you know, because they know that I'm joking or something. Like, for instance, 
I've got friends of other races. They joke about me being Jewish, so, so they'll always make jokes about, oh, yeah, look, I found a penny on the floor. Oh, you know, you know, like stuff like that. Or, oh, I went to the thrift store and, you know, I got a better deal because I Jewed the guy down. Well, if I'm buddies with him, I'm not going to be offended. If a stranger did that, I don't want to punch him in the face. But because we're buddies, you know, so it's like, um, okay. This or, All right. So people joke about me. Like I have friends of other ethnicities that joke with me because I'm Jewish. Well, I have black friends, and I'll joke with them about being black, you know, and they they know, they understand. So I'll just say, hey, you know, do you do you take aspirin or Advil? You know, oh, I take Advil. You know why you don't take aspirin? Because when you open the bottle, you have to pick cotton to get to the to get to the aspirin. And they're like, oh, you're an idiot, man. Oh, they start laughing. Well, a total stranger, that would be racist, right? That would be Lashon Hara because I'm being racially derogatory, but because I'm close, intimate friends, and we joke with each other all the time about our ethnicity, it's not a big deal. It's not Lashon Hara among us. Now, it's something that I would joke with him in private maybe, but I wouldn't joke with him like that in the communal setting because somebody overhearing that would say, that's Lashon Hara, you're being racist, and would be get mad at me. You know, and I don't want to, to be that, but joking among friends is kind of like a locker room talk, so to speak. So it says, even if something, it, it is even wrong to say something derogatory about another person in a joking manner. A good principle to follow is anything that is forbidden to say is also forbidden to hear. It must also be noted that the rare times do exist when it is not only permissible to speak Lashon Hara, it's actually commanded to do so. So people want to hear these rules because they're like, oh, yeah, what's the what's the exception to the rule that I could speak bad about somebody? Let me. Right. Because people like a train wreck. You must have seen the sin yourself. You must be sure that what you saw was a sin. Your motives in communicating the story must be pure, not for ridicule, not for revenge, not to make yourself look good. Now, I've, t now I've, given, this, I've given this story a hundred times, so I'll just do it again. Let me finish off this list, and I'll get into that story. Number four, there must be absolutely no exaggeration. You must be willing to tell it to the person's face, even if you're unable to do so. So everybody know my good buddy Mike Chase used to be an alcoholic, used to be a drug addict. So let's say I see him walking out of a bar with another guy, and they've got their arm around each other, they're staggering all over the place. And I come back and say, guess what? I saw Mike, Mike Chase leaving that bar. He was drunk as a skunk, man. He was stumbling around everywhere. There's another guy with them, and they were trying to make it to their car. I bet you they were driving drunk going home. When that wasn't what went down, Mike was a sponsor to a guy at a bar who fell off the wagon, says, I can't make it home. I need a ride home. But the guy's bigger than Mike, and the guy's leaning on Mike, and it's hard for Mike to stay steady walking out. So it looks like he's drunk, but he's not drunk. And yeah, he drove the guy home, but he wasn't drunk. I committed Lashon Hurrah in that moment because I didn't have the full story. I was trying to make Mike look bad. I was trying to make myself look better because, hey, I didn't get drunk. So if you do speak Lashon Hara, you must have seen the sin yourself. You must be sure that what you saw was a sin. See, in that story, I wasn't sure. Your motives in communicating the story must be pure. There must be absolutely no exaggeration. You must be willing to tell the person to their face. See, a lot of people are brave and will tell the story, but the person shows up and they shut up. Oh, they're right behind me, right? You're brave enough to say it to everybody else. Why don't you say it to my face, right? So you should be willing to be able to, to, to make your accusation to that person's face. 
Other instances where Lashon Hara may be spoken is if a person is causing someone else physical or psychological pain, is stealing from someone, embarrassing another person, or damaging someone's property. So if somebody else is being wronged, you know, you can, you can put a stop to that. So in such a case, you must not jump to conclusions. If at all possible, you must speak to the offender before spreading the story. Your personal motivations must be absolutely pure. You must not cause the person to suffer in excess of what they deserve. And the Lashon Hurrah that you speak must, not be, must be stated publicly, and it must not be a whisper campaign. To summarize, Lashon Hurrah is any spoken or written word or expression of the body that will cause another person to be hurt in any way. So that is the Hebraic biblical foundational teachings of gossip, slander, criticism. So this whole story was about Miriam gossiping, slandering, criticizing, bad-mouthing Moses, bad-mouthing the minister. And she uh, received, uh, she got leprosy as a result. So there's a couple passages in closing that I would like to read uh, fairly quickly. Psalm 10515. Psalm 105, here I am, 15. And actually, 1 Chronicles 16.22 says the exact same thing. Touch not my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. That's God's command and warning against lay people not to, in any way, verbally, mentally, physically, financially, to harm a man or woman of God. Touch not mine anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. If anybody had a right to touch God's anointed, if anybody had a right to do a prophet harm, it would have been David. Because Saul was an anointed king. Saul was also a prophet. Saul was also a nut job. And he was all the time trying to kill David. And David had multiple opportunities to rid him of this problem of crazy King Saul. But he didn't because he's like, I'm not going to become king this way. I'm not going to touch God's anointed. I'm not going to do my prophets any harm. So if, if there is an anointed person of God that you don't agree with, you don't like, and maybe it's kind of against you, you let God take care of it. You don't take care of it. You don't take matters into your own hands and become kind of some kind of spiritual vigilante. So we must... Uh, we, we, we must back up and support and defend our spiritual leaders. What was that 16? 1 uh, uh, Chronicles 1622. 1622. Um, so, all right, I'm going to get a little bit right-wing crazy conspiratorial here. But with the way technology is going, this is why we need to have a family and a community like this, and we need to get to know each other really well, because there's going to come a time when there's going to be things coming out publicly that's going to make it look like one of us are a bad guy. Because with the technology of AI, Photoshop, being able to rip somebody's voice from, you know, somebody, all they have to do is just take this sermon from online, rip it, and they can virtually make me say anything that I want or anything that they want. So if anything comes out on the internet, that makes any one of us look bad, our flesh is going to be tempted. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you know, they were at Harvest House. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, they used to be a drug addict, so this doesn't surprise me. 
And we're automatically going to want to dogpile on this person when they may have not done anything wrong. So we need to give the person the benefit of the doubt whenever any accusation is made. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You would want the same done for you. So there may be, you know, and I think this is going to be a thing where the world is going to come against believers to try to make believers look like sinners, make believers look like hypocrites by, by, by computer technologically engineering stuff to make us look like we've done or said something that we would have never done. So I hope you guys know me well enough that if something like that comes out that you would not believe that, and if you had any doubts that you would approach me personally and hear it from the horse's mouth. Now, I know that a lot of Protestant churches like to paint Pharisees as if they were just eager to kill people and put people to death. But according to the Talmud, it was considered a bloody Sanhedrin, a bloody court of Israel, if two people were executed during the reign of one high priest. So they were very careful on issuing the death penalty. So they even give this story. If two guys enter a house... And only one guy comes out and he's got blood all over his shirt and a knife, a bloody knife in his hand. Could we put that guy, can we convict that guy and put that guy to death? Logically, you'd say, gosh, he's got blood on his hand, he's got the knife in his hand. Of course he did it. Well, did you see it? No. How do you know he did it? You weren't inside the building. You don't know what it went on. Was there somebody already in there waiting on them? Did somebody crawl through a back door or through a tunnel or through a window? Did, did, did somebody attack the other guy and then this guy tried to save him but couldn't and he ran out and he had the knife and the blood? You don't know. So in that instance, you've got to give that guy the benefit of the doubt that he didn't do it. Innocent until proven guilty. And that's the way it should be in the believing community because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the evidence of two or three witnesses let everything be established. So that's two lessons for us today is that we shouldn't gossip, slander, and criticize. We should give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Because we'd want the same done for us. That's probably the biggest reason people don't want to be a part of a religious community because of hypocrisy, because of slander and bad mouthing. And I remember as a kid, and this touched me even to this day, as a little kid, there was a church split. I don't even know or remember what it was about, but it was a business meeting and I was there. And there was all this argument going on. And of course, I was a kid, so I didn't really know what it was about. But I knew that we were about to get a different preacher, and this, was gonna, this other one was going to get sent out the door. And this one guy stood up. He said, if this is what a Christian is, 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 is like, I don't want to be one. And he walked out the door. And that has touched me and affected me to this day. It's like, man, I don't want to do or say anything that would make anybody want to say, I don't want to be a believer in Jesus Christ and Messiah Yeshua. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, close. The cause of atheism is Christian. Yes, who said that? That would that, be third day. Yeah, it was third day, but they quoted it from someone else. I can't remember who it was, but yeah, the the greatest the greatest reason for atheism is Christians. And even Gandhi said that he's like, you know, I'd be a Christian if it wasn't for Christians, because he read the Gospels. He read, and he's like, I love Jesus. I love what he said, but I'm not going to be a Christian because of Christians. So that's why we've got to be a better example. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, close with one more hymn. Oh, Heavenly Father, if any message strikes home, it's this one. Because virtually every single believer, every single human being has a problem with gossip, criticism, slander, Lashon Hara. 
As much as I talk about it, preach about it, try to guard against it, I still end up doing it. Whether it be through a facial expression or maybe through just a off the cuff because I'm mad moment on Facebook or, you know, whatever. Heat of the moment kind of thing. So, Lord, help us. Put a spiritual check engine light in our spirit so that it'll go off right before we're about to go off. <laughs> so we could stop and say, whoa, 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 hang on. What, what am I about to say or do here? And we could bring glory and honor to your name in and through this way. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, which is a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is every one that retaineth her. Yavarekaka Adonai Vishmareka. Ya'er Adonai Panava Lecha Vechunecha. Yasa Adonai Panava Lecha Vea Sem Lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshienu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen.